I'm Tavis Smiley, and this hour of two conversations on the B side. We'll talk with uh, we'll talk politics with senior political analyst for CNN, John Avlon. Uh, a lot to take his temperature on, including uh, the new Republican House Speaker, Louisiana's Mike Johnson. We'll talk about this tentative agreement uh, between the UAW and Ford, two other car companies to, to come to terms with. But at least um, it appears there's an agreement uh, between the UAW and Ford. And we'll get John's take on this Clarence Thomas news of yesterday. Uh, if you haven't heard that story, you'll uh, want to <laughs> want to hear that and uh, get John's read on that. We'll do that on the backside of this hour. We commence this hour, though, um, talking about how many more racial dog whistles we can endure in these Republican presidential candidate debates. The next GOP debate is just around the corner, November 8th in Miami, to be exact. Only God knows how much worse things are going to get on a debate stage in Florida, of all places. We'll talk about it now with Calvin uh, Shermerhorn, professor in the School of Historical, Philosophical, and Religious Studies at Arizona State University. Professor Shermerhorn, how are you today? Great. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on your show. It's good to have you on. Thank you for the time. Let me start with this. I mentioned um, in Florida, of all places. Um, give me your sense of how the setting um, might impact uh, what to expect from this Republican, this next Republican debate. Florida, of course, home of Ron DeSantis. Florida, the home these days of Donald Trump. We know all the shenanigans that uh, Ron DeSantis has been up to, say nothing of Mr. Trump. But I, I wonder to what extent you think the setting will impact uh, whatever is going to happen or transpire on this debate stage. The setting is important. Uh, here we are in Miami. We'll be in Miami on the, November the 8th. I'm in Donald Trump's backyard and in Ron DeSantis's state. And uh, I think, you know, the most important person in the debate won't even be there, uh, former President Donald Trump, who has defined himself as being the man that is the message. Um, he has said, I am your retribution. And so he's campaigning for a revenge presidency, um, you know, advocating or at least tolerating the use of violence. And so we, we kind of see this in the background. Um, you know, Governor DeSantis has... Um, got, you know, let, set down a hard line on censoring public schools, even censoring corporate speech like Disney. This is not news to any of the, the listeners here, um, but this is certainly important because it kind of, you know, showcases the, the, the place in which all of this is taking place. Yeah. How do you read or how do you process uh, Trump's statement? He's made it more than once that I am your retribution. That's that's a politically uh, loaded uh, statement. Um, and one could spend hours just unpacking that statement. But how do you read that frame that he has put himself in, that I am your retribution? He, he is, he is he's, um, making himself the subject of the campaign. And why is that significant? Um, since the Republican Party was formed in the 1850s, in each presidential election, they put down a platform saying, this is what we stand for, this is what we're about. Um, they stopped doing that in 2020 um, when they simply nominated Donald Trump for re-election and said, um, sorry, we don't have a platform. We have a person. We have a person who now represents, can maybe you can project onto this person your fears, your your hopes, your expectations, um, but really have um, kind of unloaded that, that heavy intellectual task of saying what we're actually for 
uh, and say we're just for this person, whatever he happens to say at the time. And so on, uh, you know, things like climate change or elections, you can, you know, um, it's almost an hour by hour uh, change in what the candidate says. I'll discuss this more with John Avalon, as I mentioned moments ago, on the backside of this hour. But uh, let me let me let me pivot um, uh, for a moment here to uh, the new speaker of the House, Mike Johnson. And I'm raising this issue because of what you just said about Donald Trump. So we now know that Trump uh, didn't waste any time congratulating Mike Johnson. And why wouldn't he? Um, So now here's what we have. This is the frame that we're in. The third person in line to the presidency um, uh, did not want to uh, accept the results of the last presidential election, um, say nothing of all the other issues uh, on which he is out of step with, with most Americans. But the concern that's already being raised is that if this is a close election, and at the moment we expect that it will be, if it's a close election and we find ourselves in the same situation we found ourselves in you know, the last time around, but now the Speaker of the House um, is a Donald Trump sycophant who has all kinds of powers and authorities, uh, and we already know his relationship uh, to Donald Trump. There are already concerns being raised about what happens when somebody that high up with that much power gets a chance to play uh, a role in a process um, that, uh, again, may uh, uh, result in, a, in an election that's really, really close um, your your views on the role that Mike Johnson might play, could play, just what it means broadly that somebody who is that uh, who has that kind of allegiance to Trump is now the Speaker of the House. Yeah, it's um, it's kind of a, a, a nightmare scenario in mm-hmm. which um, someone who has gone on record as uh, you know support of you know trying to under, undermine the 2020 election is now in charge of taking that process forward. Mm-hmm. And this is the this is the worry that um, you know you, you don't see democracies fall dramatically um, you know in many cases, but you can see the erosion step yes. by step until almost imperceptibly you've crossed the line. And so, uh, as we you know since 2016, the the lines have been crossed and crossed and crossed. And so, wh- where do we end up there? Um, I'm actually concerned too with what's behind this, which is. Um, we think we're, we're, we're in a, a, a period of uh, profound voter suppression and policies that we really haven't seen since the, the Jim Crow era um, that are targeting African-American voters. When we, we think about the history of this with tax and literacy mm-hmm. tests, gerrymandering, violence and intimidation at the polls, um, you know, if it, if it comes to what you're saying, what's behind that is this incremental um, repeal of civil rights. Yep. Over the la- that we've gained over the last 60 years. Let's talk more about that incremental uh, repeal of civil rights when we come forward. Let's talk more about the erosion of American democracy. Uh, and let's talk about these racial dog whistles that we saw, these first two Republican debates, and what uh, you think is in the offing for the third one in the state of Florida, as I said. Uh, we're talking with Calvin Shermerhorn. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Seeking the truth. Seeking the truth. Speaking the truth. This is the Tavis Smiley Show. Happy birthday. Helping to make you the most knowledgeable person in your circle of friends. This is Tavis Smiley. 
You made a powerful point moments ago, Professor Shermerhorn, when you talk about the fact that democracies just don't fall flat. They don't fall overnight uh, over a period of time. It's almost imperceptible uh, the ways in which we experience uh, an erosion of our democracy. Uh, clearly, um, we could have a conversation about the fragility of our democracy. But tell me more about the ways in which you think that our eyes aren't even on the ball when it comes to the steady erosion of this experiment in democracy. This is a great question. And so if we want to go back 10 years to the um, Supreme Court case, Shelby County v. Shelby County v. Holder, mm-hmm. um, in which the conservative majority uh, invalidated parts of Section 4 of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. This essentially said that um, a history of discrimination is over, and therefore we do not need to pre-clear states like North Carolina or Arizona, where I'm calling from, um, for um, you know, for for possible discrimination, and this gave the green light, um, and I will say to the Republican Party to target ways in which African Americans vote and close uh, and lean on the door. Uh, I don't say close the door, but make it more difficult for people of African descent to vote. And so we've seen this, and then we've seen cases that come up after this. And it's a kind of a tug of war, but it's certainly um, resolving on the side of those who would suppress the vote. And so you don't see this is not, you know, um, something that just happens. It's not an event you can really report on, but it's a process that creeps over time. Mm. Some would argue that um, there's a senator senator from your state in Arizona (laughs) that has aided and abetted um, this process of an erosion of our democracy, um, given the fact that they have blocked. Uh, over a period of time, some important legislation from advancing in the Senate, like um, meaningful yes. reform on voting rights, like meaningful uh, police accountability, et cetera, et cetera. How would you respond to those who would critique that particular senator from your state of Arizona? I, sh- I share those concerns as a citizen, and uh, I, I just find this inexplicable um, because uh, this leaves the door open to those who would um, further restrict voting rights, further restrict um, the, you know, the freedoms and liberties of Americans. And the, the Republican Party likes to talk about liberty and freedom, but um, what about LGBTQ rights? Um, what about teaching uh, American history in school without fear that someone's going to call and cancel your lesson or get you fired? Um, so what about, you know, the free and fair, uh, a free and fair election process? Um, it wasn't too long ago here in the Phoenix area that future Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, William Rehnquist, went from his Tony neighborhood in North Phoenix down to South Phoenix and, as a, as a citizen, challenged black voters standing in line to vote. Uh, he challenged them. It was, it was within his, I guess, his rights as a, a citizen. This is before the Voting Rights Act. Mm-hmm. And it encouraged a lot of people to step out of line and say, I do not want to be harassed by this white lawyer from uptown. And so if we, we forget those lessons of history and then we leave open uh, the, the door to all kinds of voting suppression, intimidation and violence uh, around voting, then what, what, where, where do we, you know, where, did, where does the future uh, lead? No, I'm glad you raised that point because as Americans, our memories are, are, are pretty short. Uh, and I hadn't thought about, thought about that in a long time, but I'm glad you, you put your finger on that. That, that lawyer, William Rehnquist, to your point. Uh, who uh, who was challenging, literally in their faces, challenging uh, black voters in Arizona 
uh, went on to become the chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. I digress in that regard, uh, but I'm glad you reminded me of that. That is the backstory, and, and we just, again, have short memories around here, but that guy ended up becoming the chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. Again, I digress on that for the moment. Let me talk about these racial dog whistles. We are headed, as we said earlier, toward um, debate number three. I had enough after the first one. I couldn't watch much of the second one. I don't know what I'll do on this third one, um, but these debates are continuing. Uh, at least on the GOP side of the aisle, uh, Donald Trump continues not to show up. He's always the uh, the elephant in the room, uh, uh, given his absence. Uh, and yet uh, these debates go on. Uh, in the first debate, in the second debate, um, there were a number, uh, to your point, a number of racial dog whistles. Uh, before I talk about uh, Miami and what, you know, how, how off the rails this is going to be, again, once they get to the state of Florida or where anything goes. But as you saw these first couple of debates, give me a sense of what you picked up on, what you saw regarding these racial dog whistles that were uh, that were that were pretty prevalent. I want to, yeah, I want to talk about a, a tragedy which I see in uh, Nikki Haley's uh, candidacy and, and Senator Tim Scott's candidacy. Sure. So both are, are running in this kind of pretzel-shaped logic of having overcome um, racial and, and uh, gender discrimination that then they say doesn't actually exist. Mm -hmm. So we can ask which is it. And I was struck by what uh, Senator Scott said. Uh, we survived discrimination being woven into the laws of our country. What was hard to survive was Johnson's Great Society, where they decided to put money, where they decided to take the black father out of the household to get a check in the mail. And I, I just think that this is, it is a dog whistle, but it also distorts history. If we want to look back at the, the 1960s, yes, this was a time of uh, national trial. But those policies, including Social Security, Medicare, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Economic Opportunity Act of 1964, Elementary and Secondary Education Act of 1964. This had a real decline on poverty, and and through the you know federal enforcement of civil rights had a real um, positive effect on incomes, um, not just of you know worker incomes across the board, but African American incomes in particular. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're the, the racial dog whistles are really they're really loud and they're a bit subtle because sometimes we enter the conversation without without paying heed to what was actually going on and so you're you're talking about a stereotype that was propagated by people like Ronald Reagan and George H W Bush uh, of people of black people getting something they didn't deserve that eroded uh, family and this is this is just patent nonsense but uh, here here we have this kind of um, rhetoric going forward. You have Nikki Haley said there's a lot of crazy woke things happening in school, and that, that category woke now stands in for um, teaching um, the history of civil rights, teaching the, the history of anti-racism, the teaching of abolition. And if we look at, uh, at Governor Ron DeSantis's, you know, hard line against that kind of teaching mm -hmm. American history, we have the Florida Standards saying that uh, someone like George Washington promoted abolition. Well, George Washington signed the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793 and doggedly <laughs> pursued uh, enslaved people whom he owned yeah. and um, probably enslaved about 577 in, uh, um, African-descended people in his lifetime, according to Mount Vernon. So what we're seeing here is um, kind of a, 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 you know, a very 
very disturbing kind of uh, attack on history, at the same time as many of the candidates are um, committed to masking that history yeah. as taught in school. As one who teaches in a school that's called the School of Historical, Philosophical, and Religious Studies uh, at AZ State, Arizona State, uh, how, how, do, how, how, does it, how does it strike you when you hear uh, candidates for president of the United States just have a ahistorical read, just get the history all twisted and turned around, uh, and they do so um, without without being called on it. it. It is disturbing, right? We ignore history at our peril um, because we, you know, w- when we were thinking about uh, you know, what's, what's worked in the past, what has not worked in the past, or, uh, you know, directly to, to your points here, how do democracies falter and fumble, mm. and and how how do those achievements reverse? We we like to think about American history as a, a gradual upswing of, of democracy and freedom, um, but this is not true. There are ebbs and flows, and so uh, you know after emancipation in 1865, you had a, a great you know upwelling, a second founding of a nation based on um, you know equal protection of the laws. Um, birthright citizenship, uh, the right to vote. Um, these were not parts of the, the founding uh, in 1776 or 1787. But by the, by the 1890s, just 20 years later, mm-hmm. 20 years after many of these civil rights um, victories were achieved, you had a full reversal on yeah. that. And you, you had states like South Carolina, which Tim Scott represents, mm-hmm. uh, a majority black state where by the, the 19-teens, Almost no African Americans were voting. Yeah. No, there's no question uh, about the point you made. I've, I've made that point many times. There's no way that we are where we are. Uh, I still call this an experiment in democracy. We're not quite there yet. Uh, as I see it, we have a Madisonian framework for democracy, but I still call us an experiment in democracy. But we would not be where we are now without, to your brilliant point, interposition and nullification and amendment and protest. That all brings us to where we are today, still trying to make uh, this a more perfect union. Um, let me go back to the point you made a moment ago. I'm just watching my time here about Nikki Haley and Tim Scott. It's a salient point, uh, a subtle point, but salient. Uh, and I think relevant. And I want to just come back to it right quick. And that is this notion that every time you hear Tim Scott, every time you hear Nikki Haley, we'll hear them again uh, uh, November 8th on this debate stage in Florida. Um, they keep pressing this notion that uh, they overcame uh, racism. They overcame uh, gender bias. And to your to, to your your basic but brilliant point, which one is it? Did you overcome it or does it not exist? Uh, and yet they keep pressing this claim, and nobody seems to call them on it. Right, right. But that's that is the that that's the kind of the vice grips of the of the of the party yeah. that they're that they're trying to persuade to to get behind them. And when that when when Nikki Haley says I'm a union buster. Um, this is also kind of uh, a, a kind of attacking the the mechanisms that allowed people to climb out uh, of this uh, of um, racial traps. Yeah, uh, that you know, job discrimination, etc. We're going to talk to John Avalon from CNN in, uh, in the last half hour of today's program about a number of political uh, uh, trending topics. Uh, before I get to him, though, let me just uh, raise this with you. Um, we now have a we have we now have a new speaker of the house, um, third in line to the presidency. There are all kinds of issues with this guy, uh, Mr. Johnson. Again, we'll talk to John about some of that. But what this process um, sh- uh, says to me and, and to many fellow citizens, 
uh, from McCarthy to who was it, uh, Scalise to Jordan to Johnson. I've I've lost sight mm-hmm. of all of all the drama now. Uh, I think I got those names in order. But my point is that in this process, we saw uh, and the nation saw a Republican Party in the House in disarray. Clearly, they're in disarray. Um, I wonder whether or not you think the party writ large uh, is in the same kind of disarray as what we saw in the House over the last couple of weeks. Uh, I, I don't think it is um, because it seems to be uniting around this, this personality, right, mm-hmm. uh, Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And I'll leave it to the, the, the pundits to, to, you know, to be more specific than that. Um, but unfortunately, um, the candidates aren't disagreeing on things like being against civil rights or being against abortion, which, uh, as your listeners know, adversely affects African-American women disproportionately to white women. So it's a civil rights issue. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't disagree on the uh, on an array of very hostile, very mean-spirited, kind of simplistic attacks on teachers and health care uh, under the rubric of spending. Um, they simply disagree on how best to kind of promote that. And and this is this is a very worrying um it's, it's very worrying that there's not a whole lot of internal debate. Mm-hmm. Um, how concerning should that be for all of us? That you got a you got a stage full of candidates who don't who don't disagree on any of those issues. Right. I, I think it's worrying because again, here's a tableau of some people who are who show up and want to be taken seriously, mm-hmm. and for you know whatever we think about the the policies and and the the delivery, at least they showed up. But the guy who's winning the race does not show up and uses not showing up as a, a kind of a, a campaign tool that seems to be working. And yeah. so that may be, be that that's the worry. It's the institution that's the that, you know, the this is the uh, this is unprecedented. I mean, are we uh, like you say, uh, you know, a democracy that's, that's stable and building a, a, an experiment that's strong or. Mm-hmm. Is it how is it possible for someone to be the next president of the United States who does not care enough to show up to the debate? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a it's a powerful question and one uh, that the GOP isn't interested in answering at the moment. And uh, as we sit today for this conversation, uh, that guy, Mr. Trump, is the presumptive uh, nominee of that party. We shall see. Let me close in the 90 seconds I have left right quick here. Uh, I, I, I in studying and uh, preparing for our conversation, I know that you teach slavery and human trafficking in a comparative perspective, viewing modern slavery in historical terms. In 90 seconds, how does one do that? How does one teach in that frame? Well, you, you look back at history and say there are certain commonalities um, that, that, link ex- that link human experience across geography and across time. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, things like coercion, um, theft of, of labor, um, you know, institutional violence against people. Um, and so you, you kind of look for those commonalities. I like to think of, in terms of um, how if racism is written into the American DNA, mm-hmm. Then, uh, once slavery ended, the the process didn't end. The process of theft didn't mm. end, and so that's why we can look at uh, we can take California's reparations task force very seriously as an extension of that historical endeavor. No, it's a powerful answer. Uh, I I'm going to I'm going to noodle on that. If racism is is in the DNA of this country, just because slavery ended doesn't mean. <laughs> that it, it's all of a sudden out of your bloodstream. I digress. Powerful point. Calvin uh, Shermerhorn is a uh, 
professor in the School of Historical, Philosophical, and Religious Studies at Arizona State University. Professor Sherman, good to have you on. All the best to you, sir. Thank you for your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure's all mine.